Thank you for taking the time after the busyness of your day to make it a point to be here for the revival services. Let's open God's Word and turn to Proverbs 16, and let's look at verse 20. And if you are here with us for the first time during this revival, we are very, very glad for your presence. Let me take a moment to be able to explain what the Lord has had us looking at. We are looking at a wisdom statement, a wisdom principle from Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 20 that has thrust us into a series of messages. Notice what it says in Proverbs 16 and verse number 20. He that handleth a matter wisely shall find good. And as Brother Nathan and I were talking earlier, we talked about the emphasis on that word matter being that of a word and by implication a matter. And we look at the word handleth, which has the understanding of to be circumspect. Henceforth, that is intelligent in your consideration or the expert advice that is ahead of you. And therefore, we look at verse number 20 again. He that handleth a matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. And we've been emphasizing the goodness and the happiness that God wants for us in this life, but it's going to take that decision in the faith that we need to be able to see that come to fruition. And so our series has been called Handle With Care. And in Sunday morning and Sunday school, we talked about handling your mind with care. And what does the Word say about how we should handle our mind? Then we dealt with handling our ministry with care. Handling our next move with care. And then last night, handling your marvel with care. And emphasizing the word marvel in the New Testament that has the idea of to wonder and to admire and to be in awe of our Savior. Well, this evening we're going to look at this. Handle your motives with care. Handle your motives with care. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to deal with the first point right here in Matthew chapter 6. And as we are turning to Matthew 6, I want to mention that the word motive is the intent or the intentions behind why you do what you are doing. Something such as a need or a desire that causes a person to act or react a certain way. Therefore, we look at the word motive tonight and say that it does matter what our motive is behind why we are doing what we are doing. So number one this evening, the wrong motive in prayer. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 6, and there's a few different emphases on the wrong motives. It says, Take heed, Jesus speaking, that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And so there is the motive behind the almsgiving. Then look at verse number 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thine left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, that thy Father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And we read the verses on alms giving, that benevolent type of giving to those that are in need, to kind of prep us to understand that when it comes down to the motive, we must recognize we are not doing what we are doing so that others can take knowledge of it. We ultimately are doing what we are doing before the Heavenly Father. And that's where the emphasis is about to come in on prayer. When thou prayest, in verse number 5, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now I want to pause right there and talk about the motive behind praying and why we pray. Some people will say, as they look at this verse, that this means we should never pray in public. But you find in the scriptures over and over again where the church would gather together and they would pray together. They would pray out loud. But in verse number 5 here, we are dealing with the motive of man's heart. I am praying, and as I am praying, I am not praying to have the ear or the attention of God, but as I am praying, I'm praying as a hypocrite because I want you to hear me pray. I want you to hear my flowery words. I want you to know how spiritual I am. That's the wrong motive. And Jesus is addressing it, and therefore, to curve the wrong motive, Jesus states what we see in verse 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth thee in secret shall reward thee openly." And this is just wetting our taste buds to understand spiritually that we can have the wrong motive in prayer, in almsgiving, in fasting, as Jesus would deal with in these verses, or we could have the right motive in those spiritual actions. And it all comes down to who is the desire that we care, sees, or knows about what we are doing. It ought to be that we have the audience of one, if nobody else knows, if nobody else understands, that's okay. My giving, my praying, and my fasting is before Almighty God, and it's His attention that I desire. So we talk about the wrong motive in these spiritual acts. We could also consider James 4, 3. If you turn there with me for just a moment, we emphasize James 4, 3 as we consider what is going on in the battle of this life, we recognize that motives attack from the wrong direction in so many avenues of our life. And as we are finding the book of James, be reminded of chapter 4. And notice what it says in verse number 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, there's the wrong motive. 
ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Why am I asking for this? Why am I seeking this out? Why am I desiring to have this? The wrong motive is because when I get it, I want to consume it with my own fleshly lusts. I want to devour it. I want to enjoy it. I want it all to be about my selfish desires in this moment. And that's why verse number four is the following verse. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity or hatred, the enemy with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In the following verses, it deals with submitting yourself to God. It deals with drawing nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. And as you draw nigh to Him, the motives of this life begin to change. The consumption of the flesh is put away and the desire for the things of the Spirit become what you look after. The wrong motive in spiritual things. Notice with me a second thought as we go to Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke 17. I want to talk for a moment about the wrong motive in service. And as we consider the 41 years of ministry that this particular revival and last Sunday emphasizes. We are so thankful for the memories of service that have taken place within this church. Before supper this evening, and by the way, Living Goods, thank you so much for the meal. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you for taking the time to make the meal for all of us in attendance. We certainly appreciate that. I was looking at the, the wall back there in the fellowship hall and noticing all the different pictures and all the different memories and some of them were acts of service on behalf of this church being established and different processes and different additions and different remodels. And how wonderful it is to note and be reminded of the serving. But I want to talk for a moment how we can have the wrong motive in serving others and serving the Lord. I want you to notice what it says in Luke 17, beginning in verse number 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? In essence, let me give you the illustration. You as the master have somebody working for you, and that somebody's a servant working in your fields, and now that the serving in the fields is done, which of you is going to say okay to the servant, come and sit here down to meet, let me serve you? Notice what it continues to say in verse 8. And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup. And gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. So there's the comparison. You've got Jesus trying to speak in these questions to the people to get them to think about why they serve, why they do what they do. If there's a servant in the field, are you going to have him come in and sit, and are you going to make for him, or are you going to have him come in and make for you, continuing the work of service? Notice as Jesus continues to speak, it says in verse number 9, 
Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. And as you consider looking up those words, the emphasis is kind of like, I think not. So likewise ye, in verse 10, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. The mentality of a servant is not, look what I have done in the field, now feed me. The mentality of a servant is, I have done the work in the field, now I come into the house and I am not expecting any praise, I am not expecting any applause, but I am going to make the food and serve the master because I'm still the servant. I'll eat when the master is fed, I'm not expecting any thanks, I have just done what is my duty to do. And all of the servants in here know exactly what that feels like. Because you don't want any praise for what you are doing in the spirit, in the true definition of what it means to serve. You are just doing what you are doing because it's your duty to do it. There are the pride side of us that says, we want the praise, we want the accolade, we want the pat on the back. But we consider the motive of the servant as Jesus speaks. One of the reasons we often get burned out in serving is because we do things with the wrong motives. The following is a list of misguided reasons for serving within the church. A friend, Pastor Allen, passed these on. I passed them on to you because they are so good when it comes to addressing my attitude in service. Wrong motive in service, serving in order to make oneself worthy enough for God. Some people serve because they believe they have to continue to earn God's forgiveness and acceptance. But that's not it. Another wrong motive in service is serving in order to get something from God. Some do good things because they believe that if they work hard, then God will do, be good to them. They serve within the church in order to get things from God. Listen, God wants our faithfulness. God wants our love more than our service, i.e. Mary and Martha, where she hath chosen that good part. As we consider the wrong motive for serving, serving to impress or to please others. Some serve because they want people to notice them. They take positions of leadership and authority because they want others to know what an important role they play within the church. These individuals often become frustrated and upset when they aren't properly recognized or thanked by others because they have served. The wrong motive for serving serving in order to be a part of the in crowd. They serve so that others will accept and embrace them. Still others serve because they can't bear to let people down or disappoint them. 
The wrong motive for service. Service because Jesus or His church needs me. Certain people feel that they are solely responsible for carrying out a particular ministry and doing it well. They view themselves as being needed by the church to oversee specific ministries. They mistakenly believe that the church and His ministries would fail apart from them. They feel as if they are indispensable and Jesus... And his bride would need them and can't function without them. What we all sometimes forget is that God doesn't need us. He's quite capable of carrying out his will without us. It's a harsh reality for some, but a reality nonetheless. That every person in a position of service is replaceable. Jesus and his bride are not dependent upon any person. Christ may accomplish things through believers, but He isn't dependent upon them. Now as we consider the verses of Scripture, we ought to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. But again, we are talking about the wrong motives in service. Strutting our peacock feathers, thinking we're God's gift to humanity, that the church cannot function without us. And these are some of the battles that a pastor begins to face when God begins to move that pastor. I remember when God was moving us in the work of the ministry and the questions that came to my mind was either be obedient to God's will or not. And I began to think about, Lord, what about this family that just joined the church? And what about this individual that just got saved? And what about this or these that just were baptized? And what about these ministries that were just started? And what about this? And look at how the church is growing and filling up. And what about this what Justin it's not about you it's all about me and I am more than capable of moving you and I'm more than able to replace you with somebody else according to my will it's about me as we consider our attitude when it comes down to serving, we just simply need to say, I am just a servant of the Lord and I am just doing the duty that God has for me and I am just here to serve the Lord regardless of the popularity, regardless of the praise. We are servants of Christ as we consider being part of the family. This is not to say that we throw in the towel and do nothing. This is in essence to recharge us and say there is reason to serve more than many times the motives we have behind what we do. This causes us to say we want the right motive in service for the glory of God and because of the love of Christ, that's why I'm here and doing what I am doing. As we consider the wrong motive in spiritual acts like almsgiving and prayer and fasting, we also consider the wrong motive in service. But the third thing I would like to deal with this evening, the main thrust of the message where the Lord has led me to, is the wrong motive in material possessions. If you would join me in God's Word, find Luke chapter 12, which you're right close there in Luke, if you're still with me in the same place. But Luke 12, and we're going to read a few verses here in just a second as we talk about material possessions. Because a hang-up for many in our culture is the drive for more. I am not satisfied unless I have this. 
Proverbs 27 and verse 20 reminds us, hell and destruction are never full. Meaning people are going to continue to pass away and leave this earth. Therefore, it continues to say, in likewise, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. I want more. I desire more. It's my fleshly nature. And when I get the more, I become unsatisfied with the more, and another more fills its place. I remember the, one of the teen class teachers that I had when I was a young man. He gave us his salvation testimony, and it went something like this. I looked for all forms of excitement before I came to Christ. I, I found the fastest car on our streets in Peoria, Illinois. Souped it up so I could beat all of my friends. But eventually that didn't satisfy. So I went to the fastest bike on the streets, the fastest motorcycle. Souped it up a little more than my friends as we shifted from vehicles to motorcycles. But eventually that didn't satisfy. And then we went to water. And we got the fastest boats on the water and would race them till we beat each other until that didn't satisfy anymore. And the pursuit of gain eventually showed us there was nothing at the end of all of that until I found Christ. And that's where I found that satisfaction. Not just for the physical life of now, but for the eternal life that is to come. God may be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Some people have this mentality that even if you gave them everything they ever wanted, they would still want more. Why is that? Because hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Some people become dissatisfied in many different situations. Let's think about young ladies for just a second. She has the body that I want, never satisfied. She has the boy I want, or just any boy for that matter, never satisfied. She's getting married and I'm not, never satisfied. She has the perfect marriage and I don't, never satisfied. She has a child and I don't, never satisfied. She has another child and I don't, never satisfied. She has a grandbaby and I don't, never satisfied. She still has her husband and I don't, never satisfied. Some young men likewise may go on to say, he has the muscles that I want, never satisfied. He has the girl I want, never satisfied. He has the car, the truck, the motorcycle, the boat I want, never satisfied. He has the life I want, the job I want, the popularity, the sports ability that I want, never satisfied. Some pastors may think the church isn't growing fast enough, the offerings aren't big enough, the people aren't kind enough, never satisfied. The church people might be saying, the service is too long, the service is too short, the preaching or the services would be better if never satisfied. And therefore, we find ourselves in a dilemma that many of us face every single day. The wrong motive, and we're never satisfied.
My listings could go on and on, but this we note. We have everything in our God that we need to be satisfied at this very moment. The question is, are we going to live in that kind of paradise on earth, or are we going to choose the barren wasteland of never being satisfied? I came across an illustration some time ago about greed. A few years ago, it says, a man in Detroit stepped out into his backyard, and looking up, he saw a speck in the sky. It grew larger and larger, and then he discovered it was something alive. It was something struggling. A living mass of something slowly descending to the earth. What he had first seen as a speck had now revealed itself to be two large, bald eagles in deadly combat. As the huge birds were fighting in the sky over a fish, the fish had already dropped to the ground, but the birds had continued their struggle until they were bloody and exhausted. With a last wild scream, each made a fatal plunge at the other, and both birds came tumbling down to the earth, dead, falling side by side within a few feet of the man that had been witnessing the fierce battle of the sky. Greed had destroyed them. So it may be with a life, a life like yours, a life like mine. Greed grows upon one. The selfish man finally destroys himself. Being as a speck, greed, if unchecked, pulls us down from the highest and most noble positions of this life and destroys just like those two birds of the sky. Notice what it says in Luke 12, beginning in verse number 16. He spake a parable unto them, saying... So Jesus is about to give a story. Why is He about to give a story to teach? Notice what it says in verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Now get the story for just a second. Here's a man who thought, If I get Jesus' attention, if I pray to Jesus and ask Jesus, Jesus, would you cause my brother to give me the money as part of the inheritance to me? Oh, Jesus is going to answer my prayer, brother. I'm going to go and talk to Jesus right now. And the man, he gets Jesus' attention, and Jesus says, this is what happens. Jesus said to him, man who made me a judge or a divider over you. In essence, Jesus is saying, no, I am not going to answer your request. Then notice what it says in verse number 15. He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Now, how would you like to be in this story? Hey, brother, I'm going to go to Jesus with this one. Jesus is going to make my situation better. He heals people. He listens to people. He is a good judge. He has wisdom. So the man goes to Jesus and says, Jesus caused my brother to do this. And Jesus is like, who made me a judge or divider over you? And then here's what Jesus does. 
He turns from that one person and becomes an illustration to the whole class. How would you like to be the illustration to the whole class of something wrong that has happened? This man in the scriptures is full of covetousness. He's full of the desire of possessions and nothing is going to stop him until he gets what he wants. But as he goes to Jesus, and by the way, this just shows us that not everything we pray for, Jesus is going to answer. And he doesn't have to. He knows what is best for us. He knows what we need. And this man is coming with a covetous desire. He is coming with a desire to have. And with his greed and covetousness of material possessions, Jesus turns to the class and says, Class, let me give you a parable. Notice verse 16. He spake the parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Verse 17, he thought within himself saying, what shall I do because I have no room to bestow my fruits? He's pondering his possessions. Then as he's thinking about all of his possessions, he provided for his plenty. Notice what it says in verse 18. He said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Then in verse 19, he parties over his possessions. Notice what it says. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man is trusting in his possessions. This man is rejoicing in what he has physically on this earth. This man is banking on his security blanket of his material possessions. And I am not standing up here and saying that you should not do certain things with your money. But what I am saying is this man's trust was not in God. It was solely in what he put up in store for himself. Now, we ought to be wise. With everything going on, there's certain things that my family has done. We've heard of a place called Four Patriot, and we got some survival meals, just in case. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. You know, being prepared for the future. We have a traveling ministry, so in the back of our car, I have two 72-hour food packs, just in case we're out in the middle of the road somewhere, and as a husband and provider of my family, I want to be able to do what I can if in the event something happens. It's not wrong to be prepared, but it is wrong to have your trust in the wrong place. And that's this man. But notice in this man's situation how God was through it all. Notice what it says in Luke 12 and find verse number 20. But God said unto him, as Jesus is speaking, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose things shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And I ask you this question, are you rich toward God? 
Is there thought of God in what you do and why you are doing it? This whole time it was evident that God was blessing. Look back at verse number 16. He spake a parable unto them saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. There's only so much that we can do to bring forth the food plentifully. We understand there's a lot more involved with a good harvest than what we can do. There's the aspect of how we administer to the fields. But when you read throughout the Old Testament, it was very evident that one of God's forms of judgment upon His people was the pestilence and the famine in the land. Where they would even bring forth much, but lo, it came to little. Why? Because I did Blow upon it, said the Lord. Haggai, the prophet. As you consider the fact that God is blessing this man, can you recognize that God is showing His goodness to this man? Can we all recognize as we look back in our life that the goodness of God has been there all along, thus going in line with the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But this man chose to continue placing his trust in his possessions, partying and rejoicing over what he had laid up in store but in the end whose shall these things be you have not been rich toward me as we consider how unsatisfied we are in the Lord I'd like you to turn to Genesis 29 to consider the struggle that's very real in each of our lives and as we look at Genesis 29, I believe that this is going to hit home in various aspects as we look at a, another person of the Scriptures who testifies of learning to let God be enough in her life. Learning to be satisfied not in what she can gain, not in what one can gain in this life of material possessions but who it is in the Lord that they can learn to trust. Notice Genesis 29, we find a character of the Bible named Leah. I want you to notice in Genesis 29 that Leah wasn't chosen by Jacob. I want you to look at verse number, let's go down to 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... Could you imagine being in a marriage relationship and being hated by your husband? I'm going to do whatever I can, Leah said, to make my husband happy with me. And her thought was, if I give him a child, he'll be happy. Notice what it says in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And this has the idea of one who was looking in the wrong direction to find satisfaction. If I give this to my husband, a child, then now he won't hate me anymore. He will love me truly. But that's not what took place. Notice what it says in verse 33. She conceived again and bare a son. And said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. 
And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Man, could you imagine how many months Leah was trying to gain satisfaction with her husband? Over and over again, the struggle is real. The mental battle is tough. I just want to be loved by my man on this earth, she is saying. If I give him a child, if I give him a child, if I give him a child three times over, why does he still hate me? I just want to be loved. Notice as the story concludes about Leah, it says in verse number 35, and she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now, here's my decision, will I praise the Lord? Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. All of a sudden at this moment, it wasn't that I am trying to obtain favor and satisfaction from my husband. As far as we know it at this point, it wasn't gained. But she made a decision in her heart, Now will I praise the Lord. Even though I haven't gained satisfaction from the one I've been looking forward to all of these months, I can look up and recognize every single one of these children. They were gifts from God. God opened my womb. I rejoice in Him. And now, whether I have my husband's love or not, I will be satisfied in Him. And I will praise the Lord. As you consider your situation where it is at and what you remain unsatisfied with, Leah teaches us this evening to come to the grip of this reality. Regardless of if I have the spouse of my dreams or not, regardless of whether or not I have the child I've always wanted or the next, regardless of whether or not I have the physical health that I wish I had, I want to right now state before God, God, I will be satisfied because I recognize my tendency will be I reach for this for satisfaction only to find out I'm never satisfied. I reach for this for satisfaction only to find out I'm never satisfied. But when I reach up to you, I find that you satisfy even when this life doesn't. So now will I praise the Lord. Here are some specific questions to help us evaluate our motives. If no one ever knows what I'm doing, what I'm giving, what I'm serving in, what I'm sacrificing, would I still do it? If there was no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? Would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? And that's a thought that I had as I pastored and God was leading us back into the traveling ministry. Every time I come in and see a pastor in his position and the little Amelia's are running up to the pastor, loving on their pastor, I miss those days. But is my service and obedience to the Lord more important than me considering the position 
that I am in. If I had to suffer, this is a big one. If I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? You read a lot of the scriptures and find suffering is a thing that believers faced. And we are so removed from in many cases. And yet when it gets tough, we just want to turn around and tuck our tail and run. How weak is our faith? If others misunderstood or criticized our actions, would we stop? I've often said two of the things that are going to destroy me are man's applause if I don't handle it right or mocking criticism. If those whom I am serving never show gratitude or repay me any way, in any way, would I still do it? It's okay to go on unthanked because there's someone who knows all about it. He cares for you and he'll provide for you. Do I judge my success or failure based upon my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do? Or do I base it in comparison with others? As I close, I want to quote one verse for you. It's from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. When you experience the love of Christ, that changes why you do what you do and with how you do it. When you let the loving arms of Christ embrace you and carry you through, the motive begins to be where the motive should be. And as we consider a message on handling your motives with care, may tonight we simply say, Lord, I'm asking you to check the intents and the motives of my heart. Man, many in here have experience with teaching children in church, teaching children outside of church and school. There's a motive battle there. Like a pastor, pastor in a church, man, you must be in it for the money. As the pastor chuckles. We consider the motive is Christ. Let's simply reevaluate this evening and say, yes, Lord, honestly, purely, without deception. I want to have the right motive in spiritual things like almsgiving and prayer. I want to have the right motive in the material possessions that we talked about. I want to have the right motive in service. That changes things, doesn't it? Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven,